Welcome one and all to RFK All The Way, your podcast and Twitter space for commentary on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. This is Matthew Tower. I'm your host, and I'm joined tonight by the esteemed Lori Spencer, our special guest. Lori is an independent JFK historian and co-host of Maverick News. Hi, Matthew. Hi, everybody. Lori Spencer here, all the way with RFK. I'm in. Let's do this. Awesome. Well, I think this is a special and historical moment. His launch event is here in Boston, a very historic location, of course, happening Wednesday at 10 a.m. I will actually be there. And wow, I don't know about you, Lori, but what an amazing turnaround this is for us in our country. Just compared to a couple months ago, I was feeling quite despondent about the prospects that we would have a presidential campaign who would represent the values that you and I both share. So how are you feeling, Lori, about RFK Jr. jumping into the race? And maybe you could say a brief word about your past having tried to draft him in yeah. previous lifetime. And it was a lifetime ago. It was 15 years ago, actually. I was involved with the Draft Kennedy campaign back in 2008 during the 2008 primaries. We actually started trying to talk Bobby into running in 2007 because we wanted to get a jump on the primaries. But, you know, the time just wasn't right for him at that time. His kids were still quite young. He wanted to focus on being a father, which is great. He had a wife at the time who was not supportive of that. I think she wanted to focus on the family as well. And the momentum of Barack Obama was just unstoppable in 2008. And another reason he didn't want to run was we had a good friendship with Hillary Clinton, and, and he endorsed Hillary throughout the entire primary season of 2008. It wasn't until after the Democratic convention that he endorsed Obama. And that was a split in the Kennedy family. Some of you might remember that. Some of the Kennedys were supporting Hillary Clinton. Some of the Kennedys were supporting Barack Obama. And it caused quite a bit of friction in the Kennedy family. And, and now we see that happening again, right? Now that Bobby has announced that he's running, CNN did a piece yesterday, I believe it was, where they tried to get a comment from all of his siblings and other members of the family. And a lot of them chose not to comment. But some who did said that they would not be supporting him. They said they'd be supporting Joe Biden all the way. And that really kind of shocked me. I'm sure it did you too. Well, actually, not entirely, because I think some of the positions that Kennedy is taking are quite controversial and quite out on the edge of sort of pushing the envelope. We know what the mainstream Democratic Party stands for. And I think a President Kennedy will be standing for some positions and some policies that are quite a bit more, what's the word, progressive, quite a bit more, in fact, almost revolutionary than a lot of the mainstream Democratic Party. So why don't we go ahead and jump into talking about why do we support RFK Jr. for president? And I know you have four reasons, and in a moment, I'm going to ask you to enumerate those four, but I'll just briefly share my big one, which I think is summarized by what I recall RFK Jr. said recently in an interview, which is we cannot have an imperium abroad and a democracy at home. Those two things are not compatible, actually. And you've also seen that he's talking about restoring American democracy. So I think 
having a nation that truly does work for and stand for peace as both his uncle and his father modeled during their time in office. And having a truly meaningful democracy is very important to me. But I'm going to turn it over to you, Lori, and ask you to state your four reasons for supporting him. And then after each one, I'll jump in with some commentary. Well, you know, there are so many reasons (laughs) that I support Bobby and have supported Bobby for 15 years. I agree with him on most everything. I'd say about 95% of the issues. We really don't part ways on much. But there are four big, big issues for me personally that I'm basing my vote. These These are those lines in the sand for me. When I evaluate a candidate, these are the four things that that candidate must pledge to do to get my vote and to get my support. And I hope that in his speech, when he does his campaign announcement, he's going to announce some specifics of his platform. And I hope that these four things will be in that platform. And the first thing, top priority, like first day in office, pardon Julian Assange right off the bat. Save that man's life. He's dying in Belmarsh prison. And he's been sitting there for four years. It's been four years last week since they dragged him out of the Ecuadorian embassy. He hasn't been convicted of anything. And in my opinion, he did nothing wrong. He did national security journalism, and he did it right. And in all these years of existence, WikiLeaks has never once had to issue a retraction on a story. They've never gotten it wrong. So we need WikiLeaks. We need Julian Assange free so he can get back to his family and get back to his work. And the sooner the better. I hate to see it wait until January of 2025. That's, I hope he makes it that long. And who knows what will happen in the time between now and January 2025. Will they extradite him to the United States? Will the trial be underway by then? Will he be convicted? But as president, he would have the power to issue a preemptive pardon. And presidents do that all the time. Before someone is actually convicted of any crime, you can put a stop to it right then and there just by issuing a preemptive pardon. And he could well, he could let Assange go immediately. Could you give us a very succinct, what was Julian Assange's contribution to the citizens of the United States and the citizens of the world? He told us things that our government would never tell us. He showed us the documents, the secrets the things they won't declassify. Declassification of documents is so important. There's so much overclassification. There's so much secrecy in our government. We need that transparency, and we're not getting it from our government. That's the whole reason WikiLeaks was founded in the first place, back in 2006 during the Iraq War. We knew that we weren't being told the truth about that war. WikiLeaks showed us the truth, and that's real journalism. I'm a journalist, been a journalist for 35 years. We have one job, and that's to find the truth and to tell the truth. That's it. It's not our job to be mouthpieces for the government. We're not cheerleaders for any administration. Unfortunately, too many journalists are, and they've forgotten that they have one job, and that's to tell the truth. Julian Assange is one of the only journalists in the world today who does that job and does it right. Think of all we wouldn't know about the war in Iraq. Think of all we wouldn't know about what the Clinton campaign was up to in 2016. What about Vault 7 and what the CIA is up to with some of their hacking tools? So there's so much that we wouldn't know if it wasn't for WikiLeaks. We all owe Julian a great debt of gratitude, and he deserves a pardon and a presidential medal of freedom. Beautifully said. And you're much more of an expert on this topic and on Julian than I am, but I'd just like to chime in with a couple of thoughts. When you watch a video like 
Collateral Murder, which mm. he published and just depicts the U.S. military mass murdering in cold blood Iraqi civilians. What we are seeing is an extreme war crime. So there's this terrible, tragic irony that it's very much a metaphorical shoot the messenger here, where Julian, and let's be clear, to my understanding, it's not as if Julian was on the inside himself. It wasn't that he worked for the U.S. government and leaked something. Something was leaked to him, and he published it. And then he became a targeted messenger, a targeted journalist, showing the world this war crime when the war criminals themselves walk free. And you have people like George W. Bush being celebrated and fated and being publicly almost exonerated and redeemed, at least in a certain portion of the American public's imagination. And there's never been any accountability of any kind for these kinds of war crimes. So that's right. the sort of irony and contrast between the one who is exposing the war crimes, the one who is saying the emperor wears no clothes, and then essentially he is scapegoated. And the only ones who ever go to prison or get prosecuted are the ones who expose the war crimes. Right. Chelsea Manning was sentenced to 35 years for leaking those documents to WikiLeaks, served seven years of that before President Obama commuted Manning's sentence, and still mm -hmm. Manning does not have a full pardon. So right. I know that's kind of an extra ask, but I hope that Bobby will go ahead and take that commutation from Chelsea Manning and go ahead and make a, a full presidential pardon out of it. And I also hope that RFK will pardon Edward Snowden while he's at Abs it. Absolutely. I mean, I would love to see a moment where the three of them are not just pardoned, but awarded presidential medals of freedom. Because fundamentally, our nation is made stronger, not weaker, by whistleblowers, by those who either leak or publish those leaks. The true question here is when the leak happens, what's the context of it? What is it about? And in these cases, it's whistleblowing and leaking related to government acts of immorality and criminality. And how does government immorality and criminality get stopped? It gets stopped when people find out about it. Because without the information, there's no way for the public to hold the government accountable in any way in a democracy or in a pseudo democracy, which is unfortunately, I think what we live in today. And I'm going to get back to that point. But Lori, unless there's anything else to say about Julian, since we have a lot to cover, do you want to move on to point two? Yes. While you're talking about holding them accountable, and I believe that Bobby's the guy who will hold them accountable. I don't believe that any other candidate who's a declared candidate in this race, including Donald Trump, will hold certain government officials accountable for their crimes and that leads me to my next point, which is prosecuting Dr. Fauci, prosecuting mm -hmm. Bill Gates, prosecuting all of their cronies who were involved in the COVID pandemic and the creation of vaccines and forcing people to take vaccines that were untested, unproven, mm -hmm. unknown, putting their health potentially at risk. Now we know how many people, well, we don't even know the true numbers of how many people have had adverse reactions or even died from taking those vaccines. And then we need to get down to the bottom of where the heck did COVID come from in the first place? It's been three years and nobody seems to have an answer for us. All of the intelligence communities have looked into it. They've researched it and they just can't seem to make up their minds where this virus came from. By now we should know. And even the CIA recently said they were still undecided about the origins of COVID. Now, shouldn't that give you pause after three years? 
I mean, if they're still undecided after three years, the CIA is either lying or they suck at their jobs if they can't figure this thing out in three years' time. We have to get to the bottom of it. We have to hold these people accountable. I don't believe Donald Trump will ever do that. Donald Trump never fired Anthony Fauci. He never fired Francis Collins. He didn't really drain that swamp over there at NIH. I believe that, obviously, Bobby Kennedy is the guy to do that. You know, Lori, it would seem that Bobby Kennedy would uniquely be the person to do that if what you're saying is accurate. I do want to provide a little asterisk on my end, which is that I have not gone down this particular rabbit hole the way I have other rabbit holes that I'm going to get to, to my particular set of rabbit holes in a little bit. Have you read Yeah, the- I was actually just starting to listen to the audiobook of right. The Real Anthony Fauci. But I did want to say a couple of things about this. One is I have been following this story for quite some time about the origins of the pandemic and the possibility that it was a lab leak. And I always believed it was a lab leak from day one. I never bought the story that this was of a, a zoonotic origin. John Stewart perfectly captured my feelings when he went on his hilarious yet all too serious ranty diatribe. And I think he really punctuated it when he said, if there was an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania, you might go look at the chocolate factory, you know, and if there is a a lab, right, if there is a lab in Wuhan, that is researching, not just researching coronaviruses, but is researching coronaviruses that have been funded through a gain-of-function research program, then you might want to look there for the origin of the pandemic as opposed to the wet market that's alleged wet market that or alleged wet market that is, you know, five miles away. I mean, I'm not saying the wet market was alleged to be a wet market. I believe it was a real such thing, but to allege that that's where the virus started just doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add up. And this is just from a common sense standpoint. This is not doing an extreme amount of research and analysis. There are certain things, there are certain moments when you can just use common sense to see through the smokescreen and you can just tell what's really going on. It's like when George W. Bush started talking to the country After 9-11, he started saying these preposterous things like they attacked us because they hate our freedoms. It's like, that doesn't entirely add up now, does it? And then you start looking into it. Well, this, this is one of the most, I think, obvious situations we've ever had as Americans where we can just use our common sense to understand that this virus must or most almost like high, high, high likelihood would have come from the coronavirus bioweapon research lab a few miles away from the wet market. And if that's true, and you have this chain of funding that passes through Peter Daszak, the EcoHealth Alliance, and Anthony Fauci, that alone is an enormous, enormous amount of liability. And the last thing I wanted to say before I toss it back to you, Lori, is that accountability must be preceded with the truth. And if you look at the South African model of how society healed itself post-apartheid, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was an amazing, amazing thing. The deal was, we are going to suspend retribution. We are not going to take retribution against the people who have done these crimes if they tell the truth about it. And if you watch the films about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, it was very, very powerful. So I'm not certainly in a position to say what the penalties should or should not be for Dr. Fauci. What I will say for certainty is that we must have the truth in this and a whole lot of other areas. I just want to say one more thing about that. I want more than truth and reconciliation. 
I want compensation for the mm. victims. Mm. I am a victim. I have had mm. long COVID for three years. I got COVID-19 before it even had a name back in January of 2020, before they had a test for it, before they had any treatments for it. Back then, if you went to the hospital like I did when you couldn't breathe, they didn't know what to do with you. I mean, they didn't even know to put us on ventilators. I'm glad they didn't put me on a ventilator. I probably would have died. But they prescribed antibiotics and steroids and an inhaler and told you to go home and rest. And they had no idea how to treat COVID back then. So I'm one of those people who never really fully recovered from that bout of COVID. And now I've got all kinds of weird health problems that I never had before. And people who have long COVID, our symptoms match almost exactly people who are vaccine injured. Science hasn't quite figured out why that is, but it's noted that we have the same symptoms, a lot of the same symptoms. Every case is different. But at any rate, our lives have been destroyed. We've been destroyed financially. We've been destroyed physically. Our lives will never be the same. Our bodies will probably never fully recover. And if it's true that the United States government cooked up this virus in a lab, they need to compensate each and every one of us. They need to at least give us Medicare for life so that we can get the ongoing health care we need because the cost of that health care is killing us out of pocket. And a lot of insurers won't cover it. It's interesting you mention health care for life when fundamentally all Americans, at least from my perspective, should have the kind of socialized medicine that is available in every other country that is a peer to the United States and even countries that are nowhere near as rich or developed as the United States. And in fact, if you say, wait, we already do have a social medicine program, it's called Medicare, but for some sort of arbitrary reason, you have to be of a certain age to qualify for it. And to have to go through this process of this injury, and I just want to say my heart goes out to you, Lori, for what you've experienced. It's like, it's absolutely devastating. And then for that to have to be the rationale, it shouldn't be that rationale. It should just be part of what our society is because we recognize that healthcare is just the baseline. It's, it's part of the baseline of being a human in a developed society. While we're uh, on the subject of healthcare, I just want to say one thing. The reason that we have Medicare today is President John F. Kennedy. You know, He's the one who brought us the Medicare program. And when he proposed Medicare, he was fought by the American Medical Association, by a large majority of Americans. They didn't want, quote, unquote, socialized medicine in the United States. And just to get health care for people over 65 was a tremendous achievement and a tremendous yes. fight that he had to go yes. through against the medical establishment. So yes. my point is that RFK Jr. is not afraid to take on the medical establishment. And I believe that he will fight them in oh, the same way that John F. Kennedy did, his uncle, I cannot speak as to Bobby's position on Medicare for all. I have never actually heard him take a position on Medicare for all one way or the other. So I can't speak for him on that. I'm sure he will be asked and he will clarify his position. But mm -hmm. I would think just based on what I know of Bobby and his family, that he would support Medicare for all. And if Congress passed it, he would do the thing that, you know, Joe Biden said, if Medicare for all passed Congress and it came to his desk. He would veto it. Joe Biden told you that. He made no bones about that. So that's part of the reason why Congress has no will to pass Medicare for all, because they know that President Biden will veto it. We need to put a president in the White House who will not veto it, because all the polls show that a majority of the people at this point in the United States, some 70 percent or better, support Medicare for all. And I think that Bobby's listening to us. 
and his uncle Ted Kennedy was a 50-year advocate of single payer. He yeah. wanted universal health care for Americans. Unfortunately, he didn't get it in his lifetime. All we got was Obamacare, which is not single payer, as we all know. I also think that there is a bit of a disjuncture or fracture between how Americans kind of perceive the political process and what the abilities and limitations are of the president versus what's actually possible when you have a president with an extraordinarily strong drive and will to achieve something. Here's what I mean by that. You will often have this sort of passive-aggressive finger-pointing going on where you'll have some member of Congress or senator saying, well, I'm not going to push Medicare for all because it's not going to pass anyway. We've already been told that Biden will veto it. Or Biden will say, well, I'm not going to do this because the Congress wouldn't pass it. Well, all of that goes out the window when you have someone like a president, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., who comes in and says, I am going to fight tooth and nail to achieve this. Come whatever. I will fight to get everyone on side to pass this. And then suddenly the whole dynamic is totally different. And I think it has been a really, really long time since we've had someone with that level of drive to truly achieve something. Also, to your point, Lori, just to present this, we are independent here. We do not speak for the RFK campaign. We're just, just talking about it. Let's move on to your point number three, though. I think that's where we had left it off with your four points, right? Yeah, I'll pick up on number three. You know, I was just talking about how there's way too much overclassification and way too much secrecy in our government. And one of the big secrets that they've been hiding <clears throat> from us for 60 years, it'll be 60 years this November, are the documents related to the assassination of Bobby's uncle, President John F. Kennedy. There have been numerous lawsuits. In fact, several JFK historians are currently suing the federal government as we speak, trying to pry those documents out of the government. We should have had them in hand under the 1992 JFK Records Act. Those records were supposed to be released within 25 years, which would have been 2017. At that time, Donald Trump was the president. Trump alone had the power to declassify everything. And he said he would do that. Remember, he put out a tweet saying, I'm going to release all the JFK files. And then like the next day, he got a visit from the FBI and the CIA and they talked him out of it. They prevailed upon him to keep those documents secret. Some documents were released on Trump's watch. There were a couple of tranches of documents that kept historians like me busy for a while, but we want them all. And those documents should have been in our hands six years ago. And the CIA is playing a game with those documents. And I should also mention, they're also pl playing games with documents that we are still owed under the 1998 Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. That's another one passed by Congress that mandated the CIA to release and the Pentagon and all government agencies on CIA collaboration with actual Nazis after World War II. Those guys we brought to the United States and put into agencies like NASA and the CIA. <laughs> and we've learned a lot from that, but there are still lots and lots of documents of the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act that still have not been released to the public. I would like to see them release those documents as well as all of the remaining JFK documents. And I'd like for him to do it immediately, like day one. I want to see that be a top priority. And I think it's safe to say that we can count on Bobby for that. I think that's going to be one of his top priorities. Again, I can't speak for him, but I think he's been really clear about his desire to get all of those documents out to the people. 
so that we can find out for ourselves or make up our own minds with all the information that we have. Every person out there can make up their own minds. Now, accountability for whoever committed that crime, that's unlikely because I think the the true killers of President Kennedy are probably dead. And I don't believe that President Kennedy's killer was Lee Harvey Oswald. That's my personal opinion. All available evidence that I've studied in the last 40 years seems to point to the CIA or shall we say independent contractors for the CIA? (laughs) But the CIA basically is, in my mind, the culprit. And uh, that's probably why they have some documents they don't want us to see. But the American people have the right to know it's a matter of great public interest. And I don't believe that our country has been on the right track since November 22nd, 1963. I think we all felt that change and our country has never been truly great again. I think a lot of people, myself included, kind of liked Donald Trump back in 2016 when he said he wanted to make America great again. I was hoping that he meant something along the lines of what President Kennedy was trying to do, but he let me down. He disappointed me, and that's why I'm not supporting him this time around. I didn't support him in 2020 either. So first of all, speaking of the disclosure of crimes, I would like to recommend everyone in this audience, if you haven't read it already, pick up a copy of The Devil's Chessboard by oh, David yes. Talbot, because David this book Talbot. is... I mean, if you want to understand what the CIA was up to in its formative years, you know, the CIA kind of transformed into this behemoth under the guidance of Alan Dulles. And the allegation in that book is that Alan Dulles was the ultimate sort of mover and master chess player behind JFK's assassination. It's very hard for my common sense radar to dispute this idea. And RFK Jr. himself has accused the CIA and has said the CIA was responsible for his uncle's assassination. So I think it's a very important book. I would go so far as to say that The Devil's Chessboard is a book that every American should read. Because I think it would give a a true understanding of what our country is and how it became that way over the last 60 years. And everything ties back to to Alan Dulles. If if the CIA is the mafia, Alan Dulles was the godfather. Yes. And it ties into that Nazi war crimes disclosure act that I was talking about. You know, when you read the devil's chessboard, it does a wonderful job of detailing how Alan Dulles snuck all of these Nazis that should have been prosecuted at Nuremberg and should have gone to prison for the rest of their lives, how he snuck them out of Germany and Ukraine, by the way, and brought a lot of those Nazi war criminals over to the United States or got them into Canada or got them into South America and Brazil. I mean, it all goes back to Alan Dulles. So not only did Alan Dulles bring those Nazis into our intelligence agencies, into our government, into our culture, but he also had his pause in the assassination of President Kennedy. That's my, my personal take on it, based on the evidence I have seen. And I want the rest of the evidence. I want whatever the CIA still has that they're still hiding <clears throat> from us and playing hide-and-go-seek with. It's time for well, that think- to end. Well, clearly, our next president, Kennedy, would have every incentive in the world to bring some daylight and sunshine onto those records and to finally release them. So I think you would be very likely to get your wish when I think he's the only RFK one Jr. that we can trust. 
He's yeah, the only think, one that we can trust. We'll and, and I think he would not be intimidated or bullied by the CIA the way the CIA has very likely been intimidating and bullying essentially every president. Since, every president since, since 1963. Since, that's right. I just wanted to say the other book I would recommend would be JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. Um, yeah. I think later, I want to let you finish up your four points, and then I might make a historical connection there. Lori, what would be your fourth point for... Ending the war. We've got to get out of this war in Ukraine. We've got to cut the funding. We've got to cut the flow of weaponry to Ukraine. And I can pretty much guarantee you, without America picking up most of the bill for this war and, and most of the responsibility, this war will be over real fast. Mm-hmm. We need to end it. And we need to just get our noses out of it. In my opinion, this is not America's war. This isn't America's business. This is a dispute, basically a border dispute, between Ukraine and Russia. And it really doesn't concern us. We are wasting billions and billions and billions of dollars that should be going to the American people on a war that can't be won and that there's no reason for us to be involved in in the first place. It's, it's the same argument that I would have made about the Vietnam War had I been alive back in those years. And Iraq, Afghanistan, pretty much every war we've been involved in since was really none of our business Except arguably Afghanistan, because we were attacked on 9-11. That was an attack on our shores. And obviously somebody was going to pay for that. But all these other wars that we're involved in, especially this one, this one's the most dangerous of all, because this one can escalate us to World War III. You know, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Libya, and Syria do not have nuclear weapons. But Russia does. China does. North Korea does. And here we are trying to pick a fight with everybody. It seems as though the Biden administration is literally trying to start World War III and pushing other nuclear powers into backing them into corners, which is never a good thing to do with your adversary, especially if they have nuclear weapons. I mean, what are we doing here? We've got to end this war. I I believe based on the statements I've heard Bobby make thus far that he would agree with a lot of what I just said. I think that he feels it's not in America's best interest to be involved in this war at all. And I I also hope, I haven't heard him speak on this topic, but I, I hope he'll get us out of NATO as well. Bobby recently tweeted a, a mini essay in which he sort of tied together an indictment of the neoconservatives and their so-called project for a new American century. I can't remember if that was a think tank or a white paper or a mixture of the two things, but the project for a new American century was this concept about how basically the U.S. was going to dominate the world, starting with a new Pearl Harbor, which would motivate the American populace to support these wars abroad. And then, of course, 9-11 happened not long after the idea of a new Pearl Harbor was advanced by the Project for a New American Century. And Bobby talked about the neocon drive to sort of motivate and animate these wars and the bankruptcy of that and included his criticism of funding and arming this Ukraine proxy war. I wanted to just bring in a few points here, Lori. One is let's start with a quick historical analogy. I think something that is vastly underappreciated and not fully understood by the American public is the reality and the truth, I believe, I I would submit this, that none of us would be alive today if it wasn't for President John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert conducting back-channel 
diplomacy with Soviet Premier Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis, people do not truly understand how close we were to nuclear annihilation and how much pressure President Kennedy was under from his cabinet, from his joint chiefs of staff, from almost his entire military were prodding and provoking him to invade Cuba and attack Cuba when the USSR had positioned missiles there. And fortunately, John Kennedy and and cooler heads, a small number of them prevailed. And he conducted this off the record back channel. His military didn't even know these negotiations were going on. Kennedy at that point started to realize that he wasn't, as he said, in full control of his own military. So he had to do this off the record and cut a deal that he didn't even disclose to the American public, which was to remove U.S. nuclear missiles from Turkey in exchange in quid pro quo for the USSR removing their missiles from Cuba. And so so here's the relevance to this today. Think about President Biden and what we saw in fall of last year when, Laurie, I think you and I both had a very high spidey sense in the fall of last year that the world was closer to nuclear war than it had been at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines was one of a multitude of events that happened in a very compressed two-week period where we seemed to be at very high danger. But during that time period, President Biden infamously said we are closer to nuclear Armageddon than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said this in an interview on camera and mm-hmm. almost in the same time. I said, mean, you never hear a president say that. Even at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy never used such strong words like nuclear Armageddon. I mean, yeah. the strongest words possible. We've never heard words like that from an American president. And just that one time, I think Joe Biden might have been correct. Yeah. Occasionally, you know, it's like the expression from the mouths of babes. Occasionally you'll hear these statements slip out of Biden that are actually almost him kind of telling the truth about something in a way that you imagine someone is cringing backstage and saying, oh, I wish he wouldn't have said that, like what he said. Yeah. And then the White House comes out the next day with a correction. You know, they're like, oh, well, he said that, but he didn't really mean that. What he meant to say was. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they want to walk that dog back. If You hear the president of the United States of America say, we are closer to nuclear Armageddon than we've ever been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. What you would hope is immediately after that comment, they would say, and we are doing everything in our power to diplomatically negotiate de-escalation, a path out and cooling down of tensions to ensure that doesn't happen. That would be the sort of statement that would be like, if you don't make that statement immediately after the nuclear Armageddon comment, you must be fired. You have no business being the leader of a nation that is nuclear armed. But he didn't say that. He said almost exactly the opposite of that. He said essentially two things. One, I'm not going to talk to President Putin directly. No, I will not be doing that. And no, that's not going to happen. And then he, he made this bizarre comment, which was nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, which translates as there will be no negotiation about the end of this war without the involvement of Ukraine, which obviously it goes without saying that Ukraine and its president must have a seat at the table. However, that does not preclude a nuclear armed nation from negotiating with another nuclear armed nation to ensure that those weapons are not used. This was so insane that it could have easily been an episode of Black Mirror, if anyone's ever watched that series Mm. on Netflix, but it's happening in real life. 
And then the other thing is that if the leak is to be believed, and I certainly have no reason to doubt this, there was a negotiation happening between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side in April of last year. So a month after the invasion, there was a negotiation, and I believe it was being mediated by Turkey. And then the story is that the United States basically directed Boris Johnson, former prime minister of the UK, to go in and kind of scotch the negotiations and ensure that those negotiations did not proceed. What I've heard is that some sort of assurance was given to President Zelensky that he would get more if he stayed at war and he would get more territory or something if he stayed at war as opposed to negotiating with Russia. Now, what's really going on here? What's really going on when you have the president of the United States refusing to negotiate with Putin in direct contrast with how JFK handled the missile crisis, which, by the way, did involve a third party. It involved Cuba, but ultimately it was about the U.S. and the and USSR in terms of them being the superpowers. That's kind of like there's an analogy yeah, here. There's... To point that out, that Castro was unfortunately excluded from those negotiations. That was just Kennedy and Khrushchev who negotiated the end of the missile crisis, Castro, and he was mad about it, but he was left out of of that. Well, he certainly got something out of it because part of the negotiations were that President Kennedy pledged that the United States would not invade Cuba, which was a very understandable concern of Castro's after the, uh, the Bay of Pigs. But anyway, so the point being here is like, well, what's really going on? Well, we've had plenty of American officials make statements along the lines of, well, what we want to do here is weak in Russia. And we've had American senators and officials say things to the effect of if Ukrainians are willing to use our weapons and fight and die to quote unquote weaken Russia, then we should support that. And of course, even before the invasion, we had numerous U.S. officials, including Victoria Nuland and Senator Ted Cruz. And of course, President Biden himself, before the invasion, threatened to quote unquote, put an end to the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. So there are a lot, a lot of things happening here that I think if the American public truly understood all these dynamics, which, of course, they don't because we live in such a propagandized society, if they actually understood what was happening here and they could see this isn't as simple as what has been conveyed to them. It is not as simple as I mean, I'm just this is the way I've been thinking about it, Lori, is it sort of conveyed like, hey, Ukraine was over there minding their own business. They were just doing a bunch of nothing for years, decades. Ukraine was doing a bunch of nothing. And then suddenly, out of the blue, out of nowhere, totally unprovoked, Russia invaded Ukraine. No, that's not exactly what happened. In fact, nothing could possibly be further from the truth. This, from my perspective, at least studying history and taking a moment to look at this, as opposed to being unprovoked, this was one of the most preposterously overtly overprovoked conflicts you could imagine. Metaphorically, the United States has been punching the bear in the nose over and over again with NATO expansion. After the United States promised not to expand NATO, the United States kept on expanding NATO. And I don't know about you, Lori, but one of the things I find is that it seems that there is almost this inability among some Americans to empathize with the other side. And this is so, so important. And it's something that President Kennedy and his brother did so well and so effectively. And when you read JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas, you find out that President Kennedy was like on a personal mission to understand and empathize with Premier Khrushchev so that the two of them could prevent 
the ultimate atrocity, nuclear war, by having a human relationship. And if you say empathy is about putting yourself in the shoes of the other and walking a mile or a marathon or as long as it takes until you understand their experience. And all you have to do if you're an American is imagine how would we feel? How would we feel if something like this was going on, something roughly like this was going on that after we lost the Cold War and the Soviets won, and then they promised, you know, here's the deal as part of the whole, we're going to have a solution on Germany, but we're never going to expand the Warsaw Pact. And then they kept expanding it. And then they extended an invitation to Mexico to join the Warsaw Pact. I and mean, it doesn't take that much of a leap of imagination to understand how threatening it must be for Russia for NATO to expand eastwards. And the point is not whether or not we believe that it should be threatening. I've talked to people who say, well, Russia shouldn't feel threatened by it. Well, that's not what matters. What matters is whether the Russian leadership, the Russian elites and President Putin himself and his generals and whoever else is influential and the top ranks, do they feel threatened? Do they feel threatened? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then you start to understand some of what's going on here. I think that Ukraine situation, it's so multifaceted. It's like three things simultaneously. I think it is simultaneously a civil war inside Ukraine and a border dispute between Russia and Ukraine. And on top of all that, it is a U.S. covert proxy war against Russia. And all three of those things are happening simultaneously. And it's hard to see those three things and the way those three things intersect without spending some real significant time picking it apart. This is a war that, as many people who study the history of U.S.-Russia relations understand, has been going on for more than 100 years. Really, ever since the revolution of 1917 in Russia, the United States has deemed themselves an enemy of that country, whether it was the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation. We have, except for a very brief period for a few years during the Roosevelt administration in World War II, that we had an alliance with the Soviets, of course, to win the war. And then as soon as that war was over, really even before the war was over in 1945, the Cold War gets underway and suddenly our former ally is now our enemy. <laughs> and we <laughs> spent the next 40 years trying to destroy them. And one of the ways that we tried to destroy them and this is something that we know, thanks to the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, we have documents now that show us that our friend Alan Dulles, there he is again, wherever there's trouble, you'll always find Alan Dulles. Well, there's Alan Dulles over there, not only recruiting Nazis in Ukraine to come to North America, but also arming them, funding them, these Banderite groups, these rebels, if you will. He was training, arming, and funding them to wage guerrilla warfare against the Soviet Union. It was our effort at regime change. And that was going on in the 1950s and in the 1960s. And up until the Soviet Union fell, then there was no need for that program anymore. But I would argue that that has continued to exist even after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the turn of the 21st century, when we suddenly decided that we couldn't work with President Putin. He was not going to be a sober Yeltsin that we wanted him to be, and he was going to put Russia first. That's when we started to pull those files, I think, back out of the archives and said, hmm, the Ukrainian nationalists, they've always been our friends. We can use them to wage a proxy war against the Russian Federation. And that's exactly what happened. 
with the revolution in 2003 that wasn't successful, the one that was successful in 2014, which is really where the current war began. And it's been going on ever since. What happened in 2022 was just a major escalation of that war. Another thing I wanted to say about that is on the eve of World War II, when it was obvious that things were escalating towards the United States getting involved in the war, Robert Kennedy's grandfather, Joseph P. Kennedy, was at that time ambassador to the court of St. James in England. And he was desperately trying to stop that war. He was trying to keep us out of that war. And he gave a speech that always stuck with me when he said that uh, he had nine children. And he said, I've given nine hostages to fortune, meaning that if there's a a world war, my boys are going to get drafted and I could lose them. And in fact, he did lose a son in that war. He lost his eldest, Joseph, and almost lost Jack in the PT-109 incident. He was lucky to have survived that. But Joe Kennedy, those words come back to me now when I look at where Bobby Kennedy is now. He's now a grandfather. He's given six hostages to fortune. He's got six children. And one of his children, his son, Connor, who's like 27, 28 years old, he's actually gone over there. He joined the International Legion. And he fought. He did a tour of duty in Ukraine, doing actual in you know, Ukraine for combat. Ukraine. He fought on the Ukrainian side, just to be clear. That's correct. And he supports Ukraine. His son does. I have to take my hat off to Connor for doing that. Rather than just talking a good game online and being a keyboard warrior, he actually picked up a gun and he went over there and he put his body where his mouth is. And I have to respect that. So it's going to be interesting to see what Bobby has to say about this war and what his thoughts are on how to bring it to an end. Also, about the Ukraine leaks, you mentioned those a few minutes ago, and I just wanted to bring up Scott Ritter because he deserves a shout out. I just wanted to say that the Ukraine leaks proved that pretty much everything Scott Ritter's been telling us for over a year was true, was factual, and was correct. Scott Ritter's been telling us for quite some time now that U.S. special forces were in Ukraine actually taking part in combat. The Ukraine leaks just confirmed that. Scott Ritter also told us that Ukraine is losing the war, contrary to what the media tells us, contrary to what the government tells us. Russia is actually winning this thing. Just as he was correct about Iraq not having weapons of mass destruction before we went into the Iraq war, he has once again been vindicated. He has once again been proven correct. And yet he is still silenced, shadow banned, and even suspended off many social media platforms, including this one. You had mentioned Scott and the weapons of mass destruction lie, right? There are certain lies that are so big and powerful and all-consuming, and they get repeated over and over and over nefariously and intentionally by people in power to almost hypnotize and put into a trance the American people to support a certain agenda. In other words, if you tell the American people over and over again, Saddam has links to Al-Qaeda, Saddam is trying to obtain significant quantities of uranium from Africa in order to build nuclear weapons. But don't forget the anthrax. And the anthrax, which RFK Jr. has revealed, that came from the CIA. Post 9-11, there were these envelopes containing anthrax that were sent to certain members of Congress who were the ones who were opposing the Patriot Act. The anthrax apparently came from the CIA who had taken over a bioweapons lab that had, if I'm remembering this correctly, had been shut down as far back as the Nixon administration. So you get these lies that are told 
big enough and intensely enough, you know, about Saddam being a threat to the American people. You go back to the Vietnam War with the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the lie that we were attacked there. And so here, the lie that is being said over and over again is just that word unprovoked. It's punched again and again and again, unprovoked, 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 which then feeds into the everybody who is opposed to the United States is the next reincarnation of Hitler. And I'm old enough to remember when the first George Bush said that Saddam Hussein was worse than Adolf Hitler. If you Google the expression worse than Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, George Bush, you will find that article. Okay. So this, this idea you mean that H. President W. His dad? Yes. That yeah, the first George, George Bush, a George H.W. Bush during the first Gulf War in what year was that? I believe 1990. 1991. 1991. 1991. Sorry. 91. So you go to 1991, you find that George H.W. Bush said that Saddam Hussein was worse than Adolf Hitler. You will find that quote. And so this, if you can convince the entire American public that Russia had zero justification, it was entirely unprovoked, right? Then you can cast President Putin as a Hitlerian nemesis who is bent on conquest. And you don't have to mention anything about all the ways that the United States did provoke this by expanding NATO and by getting itself involved in the 2014 coup, right? And none of that is to say that what Russia did was right. It's just to say that the word unprovoked is a complete and total fallacious lie. It is as big of a lie as you could possibly tell about this situation. But once you tell that line, you get everyone on board with it and you've got your Operation Mockingbird lined up, you've got all the media repeating it over and over, the public becomes almost in a trance, right? And we'll just keep supporting what's going on. But then let's bring it back to RFK Jr. So fundamentally speaking, the ultimate goal here is not to assign blame. At the end of the day, if you actually want a ceasefire and you want a durable peace agreement, you don't get that by proving in the court of public opinion or anywhere else who is at fault. What you do is you find a way to come up with a resolution to the conflict that meets the needs of the parties while maybe the parties having to let go of certain dreams of theirs, right? But you have to find a path forward that says, this is an acceptable path forward. That's how you get to peace, not by figuring out who's at fault. And I think we have a model for how the first president, Kennedy, found a path forward with Premier Khrushchev. And I really believe that President Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would do that if he were president today. And I think he would do it immediately with President Putin. And I think I he would do it never. And we, and we I need think that. We desperately and, need a Potsdam conference. We need a Yalta conference. We need to get these parties. Or, or even just the kind of back channel that we had. I mean, sometimes peace even is made through these, through these very off-the-record clandestine diplomacy, even with citizens who are deployed. I mean, whatever it would take, I think you would find the graceful and artful way to do that. What I wanted sure. to just sort of weave together is what is my number one reason for supporting RFK Jr. for president? I think it's the intersection between the following, <clears throat> because it all ties together. None of what I'm about to say stands on its own. It's all interweaved together. It is the transformation of the United States as the bully, oppressor, and conqueror on the global stage to a cooperator on the global stage. We must fundamentally be a cooperator. And there are a lot of different ways to cooperate. That is the fundamental approach that I think JFK 
was attempting to take, right? And you could hear it in what I would submit as the most important and best speech any president has ever given, which was on June 10th, 1963, mm-hmm. JFK's speech at American University about the most important topic, peace, right? Yeah. And the way he talked about it, he was very clear that this is not the peace of dreamers and idealists. This is about practical steps in cooperation with other global players, including the Soviet Union, who we might have believed to be an adversary, but we must re-examine our own attitudes. We must look at how we can shift from this adversarial stance to a cooperative stance. So when we shift out of this imperial conquering stance into a cooperative stance, it's like you imagine Gulliver's pinned down and suddenly the ropes are free. It frees up all of this other energy. We don't need to continue to bankrupt ourselves on foreign wars of aggression. What is war? War is a racket. We can read this Medley Butler book and we can discover war is, here's my description of it, war is the conversion of brainwashed young people's bodies into profits for those who manufacture the weapons for that war, right? Especially in today's age, it is the absolute nature of war. So the the military industrial complex is always going to be on the lookout for the next war, as long as we're the aggressor and as long as we're in that stance. Afghanistan wrapped up and suddenly what's happening? We are once again converting, but instead of converting American bodies, it's Ukrainian bodies. But think about this. Imagine if there was a draft today. Imagine if American kids were being drafted and sent to Ukraine. I think there's a way in which the American public is a little bit asleep right now. And I think they're not quite looking at the sort of dunderheadedness of all of this and the way that we're so almost sleepwalking into World War III with Russia. But I do think that there would at least be much more of a debate if suddenly it was not not just even a voluntary American army like we had with the Iraq War, but if there was a draft, oh my gosh, the debate today might be just as intense as what happened with Vietnam. But in any case, I think what, what President RFK Jr. would do, he would lead that shift because he said, we can't have an imperium, we can't have an empire abroad and a democracy at home. So suddenly we are a cooperator, we are a good neighbor on the global stage. And I think that would release so much energy to redevelop at home as well, for us to become a country that really does, if we're not spending 50 plus percent of our budget on the war machine, and that amount of expenditure is greatly reduced. If you add up all of the money we have ever spent since the death of JFK, if you add up all the money we have spent on these crazy foreign wars, how close would that total dollar amount be to our current national debt? So we've built up a debt that has been essentially based on enriching the military industrial complex and its contractors. And we've just been printing money and we've created inflation. So it almost is like we need a USA 2.0. We need a reboot of what this country is. And the last part, and this also relates to it, is just democracy. In other words, since November 22nd, 1963, I think mostly speaking, elected representatives have been figureheads, and there's been some latitude they've had around certain topics, especially hot-button topics. I think the MIC, the military-industrial complex, and the CIA wants to see Americans believing that they're engaged in a democracy because blue is going to support this particular policy and red is going to support this other policy on certain domestic issues, like perhaps gun ownership or abortion. But when it comes to the big questions, the big questions of war and peace, and are we going to have foreign wars? It's not even that we have a uniparty, as some people say, 
it's that we have a covert military industrial complex CIA organization, almost like a loose fascism that is running the whole thing behind the scenes. And I think that does come to an end under a President Kennedy Jr. as part of the vision I've just outlined. At least this is my theory of the case. So would you care to respond to my theory of the case, Lori, before we ask some folks to talk? I really hope so. I hope you're right. I must say, I have to give some credit where it's due to Donald Trump. He tried his best to be a president of peace. And believe me, that's not easy to be the president of the United States and try to make peace with our so-called adversaries. His trip to North Korea was a, a great step forward. And unfortunately, those negotiations were tanked by people like John Bolton, by these swamp rats that Trump hired into his administration who tried to talk him out of every good idea he ever had. Trump even now talks a really good game about, I alone will be the guy to end the war. So he says. But it's important to remember that Trump has some blame on his shoulders as well. He armed Ukraine to the teeth back in 2019, stepped up the funding and weaponry to Ukraine a great deal, which greased the skids and, and set, the, set the stage for the war that we're in right now. So yes. I do believe can I push Trump Can I push back on you for a moment on this, Lori? Sure. My understanding, and I'm just going to pick one example here because I'm sure there's a lot to talk about, but my understanding is that Trump avoided at least one nuclear arms control treaty and spent a fair amount of money, quote unquote, modernizing as in building new nuclear weapons. So yep. I, I have a hard time buying the idea that he really was. Where credit where credit is due, I think having a relationship with the leader of North Korea is probably a better idea than not having a relationship with him because you don't want to end up in you have no relationship with someone who could end up in a nuclear war with. That's insanity. And so I do think there, you bring up a point here, which is building some personal bridges is better than not. However, it's certainly a mixed bag here when you contrast that move with the way he pulled out of a nuclear arms control agreement and poured more money into building more nuclear weapons. Oh, absolutely. And, and I was hoping that Trump would keep his campaign promise of 2016 and build that bridge of friendship with Russia which is what he said he was going to do. And then he got into office, of course, and he starts getting bad advice from bad people who were telling him we've got to, you know, Russia's the enemy. We've got to ramp up this Cold War. We, we can't be in an arms control treaty with Russia. And, and all of that Cold War rhetoric was really ramping up under Trump. And he also did the same thing with China. On the one hand, he tried to have good relationships with Xi Jinping. On the other, certainly once the pandemic started, I mean, he, he was demonizing China in every speech, and he continues to demonize communist China in every speech that he gives. You know, he's staunchly anti-communist, and I'm afraid that he's a bit too much of a war hawk uh, for my taste right now. I'm not so sure he's that man of peace that he proclaims himself to be. So I agree with yeah. you. He talks a good game about waging peace, but I really haven't seen much evidence of that. He had four years to show us what he could do and really only made things worse in a lot of ways, leading Joe Biden to just pick up the torch and make it even worse than it was under Trump. But one thing for sure, there won't be a Potsdam conference or a Yalta conference or back channel negotiations or a peace treaty as long as Joe Biden is president. And on Trump, I mean, he says every speech that he gives, I can end this war tomorrow, he says. I can get 
Zelensky and Putin talking to one another and I alone can fix it. Right. But my question well, to Trump is, why aren't you on a plane to Ukraine right now? You've got your own plane. I mean, every other world leader has flown over to Ukraine to meet with Zelensky, except you. And you may not be the president at the moment, but even as a private citizen, as the former president, like Jimmy Carter did when he was trying to negotiate peace in the Middle East, why not go over there and be a diplomat? If that's what you say you're good at, show us. I mean, more power to you, buddy. Go over there right now. Go talk to Putin. Go talk to Zelensky. Why wait until January 2025 to get started on this? Why not start today? I would like to not put too much more space into Trump discussion. I want to bring it back to RFK at a moment because that's what we're here for. I just wanted to say something about the overall observation I have about some of the language you were referring to and what I see as this very unfortunate fallacy of thinking amongst the American general public that is so deeply reinforced and propagandized through media, movies, the news, and all of it, which is this kind of black and white, good guy, bad guy thinking. Like either Russia is the big bad guy or we're going to be friends with Russia. Either Russia is terrible and Putin is terrible or we're going to be friends with Russia, but then you're bad if you're friends with Russia. And this is completely the wrong way to be thinking about it. Like that entire framework is the wrong way to be thinking about it, in my opinion. What I believe is, is a more helpful and productive way to think about stuff like this is the framework of conflict resolution. There's an institute that specializes in international conflict resolution that I very much admire. And one of their directors, her name is Susan Collin Marks, which she says over and over again is, Violent conflict destroys everything. Right? Violent conflict destroys everything. So you, you get a situation like what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and US and NATO, because we are very much part of that. In fact, the United States is a co-belligerent in this situation. And then you say, let's analyze this conflict. Let's look at what are the legitimate needs of all of the parties. And then you also have to look at, well, what are the illegitimate needs of the parties? What are things the part, some of the parties might be saying that they want here that really there's no backup to this? Like if, if we were to say, okay, I want to give you an example. If the United States and or Ukraine were to say, the only acceptable outcome is Putin must not be in power, which, by the way, we have basically said, like at one point, President Biden said something to that effect, this man cannot remain in power, and then they tried to walk that back. Furthermore, Zelensky has said that he will not negotiate with Russia unless Putin is no longer the president. Well, guess what? That's not a legitimate position for either us to have or Zelensky to have, because the United States does not get to choose who's in charge of Russia and has no basis and no right to make that any more than Russia has the right to decide who our leader is. And the same thing is true of Ukraine having that attitude towards Russia. It may be that Zelensky has all kinds of legitimate grievances here, but he doesn't get to determine who is in charge of Russia any more than he would want Russia to determine who's in charge of Ukraine, right? So you have to sort out what are the legitimate needs and look at it through a conflict analysis standpoint and then say, what resolves this conflict? And I think very few Americans have been exposed to the kind of education that would have them look at things through the lens of conflict resolution instead of good guy, bad guy. And I think our future president, Kennedy, would be able to look at it through the lens of conflict resolution, just like his uncle and his father did. Something actually President Putin said is that Russia, from his standpoint anyway, one of his beliefs is that countries should not interfere with the internal affairs of other countries, right? So in other words, whoever Russia's leader is and whoever that person is 
However, that's determined and whether or not that that is a fair process or not is none of our business. It's not up to the United States. And so we have to deal with the world as it is and with the leaders of countries as they are, essentially. Anyway, I really do think that this is a once in a, not just a once in a generation, because generations come every, what, 20 years? Like this is a once in a lifetime. Moment once in a lifetime. That we, this is a once in a lifetime moment that we have someone who has a certain combination of qualities. He, RFK Jr. is an outsider in that he's never held elected office, right? So he's not a, right. a career politician. He has spent his entire life fighting for what he believes in, including on environmental topics. If you haven't already, look up his background, filing lawsuits against the EPA to protect the environment and people and fishermen and rivers. And obviously on the vaccine topic, which isn't my, is not my forte, but it's a very compelling topic. But most importantly, he brings in this very sophisticated, detailed, critical analysis of power, of the intersection of corporate, military, state, media power, and a vision for restoring American democracy. Like we can actually have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people once again, which we, in my opinion, have not had since November 22nd, 1963. So this this is a potentially transformational and even revolutionary campaign. And I am so excited that it's happening and that we get to witness it. And I will be attending the campaign kickoff Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. So that'll be super, super fun. So please raise your hand if you would like to come up on stage. And we've got a request for Jim. And Jay, I'm going to bring you up. And the one thing I do want to say is please keep your comment or question to, I'm going to say 90 seconds. So keep it tight and uh, that way we can get through a couple people. Hey, good evening, everyone. So first of all, thanks for putting this event together. I think that point you mentioned at the end about this being a really important moment in time is one that everyone should really harp on and consider because the state of the economy is in a very worrisome spot right now. But that can be the catalyst for change. And I do believe that RFK, that change for a lot of the reasons you guys said, but in particular, also because of his stance on Bitcoin. I don't know how much attention you guys pay to digital currencies, but one of the things JFK did was remove the power of the money printer from the Federal Reserve. And Bitcoin is like a 21st century way of doing that. So I am excited about how Marv K. Jr. does seem to be embarking on that same journey because the central banks is one of the main ways that they are able to finance a lot of these wars. So I'm really excited about the campaign. And yeah, it was a great presentation you guys made. Well, thank you for that comment, Jay. And for folks who want to go a little deeper into the point Jay raised, just go through RFK Jr.'s Twitter feed and you will find that he tweeted about this topic and he pointed out a couple of things that are really important. One is that there could be coming a central bank digital currency. So think of a central bank digital currency as being a Bitcoin-like instrument, but instead of it being independent and decentralized and censorship resistant, it's exactly the opposite. It's a way for the Federal Reserve to control Americans' access to their funds and monitor everything we do. So imagine you're using this thing called the Fed Now, which is a central bank digital currency in theory that could get introduced. And imagine you're using it and you spend $100 of it on something 
But the moment you spend that, the government knows exactly what you just bought, where you were, what happened in that moment. And if you do anything the government does not like, maybe you're at a protest and they don't like that you were protesting there, they could violate your rights and shut off your access to your money. In theory, this is all in theory, right? But we want to be ahead of this. We want to be seeing that possibility before it happens. And I think RFK Jr. is quite prescient on this topic. And he also talks about how like Bitcoin and other decentralized crypto assets represent a kind of freedom. It's a way for Americans to say, hey, I do not want my wealth and my spending power to be inflated away. In other words, for my money, my purchasing power to go down by the Federal Reserve and the printing of the US dollar. So I want to be able to have this alternative store of my wealth. And I don't know if there's any other politician out there who has so forcefully commented on this. And this was just in one tweet, but it was such a thoughtful and well-constructed tweet. I, I encourage you to look it up on your own to gain a little more info. I, I read somewhere, some, so I, I'm trying to remember who was the author of this, but the comment was, there would be no greater or more profound redemptive arc in American public life in the last century than RFK Jr. becoming president, right? If you really think about the what happened to his uncle, what happened to his father. And now we have this moment, sort of eerie alignment around the Democratic Convention will be in Chicago of all places, which is where it was yeah. in 1968, just after RFK Jr.'s father was assassinated. Isn't that but, uh, strange? But, I yeah, just got so, a chill down my spine when you said right? that. But, but what a redemptive arc. And then the other redemptive arc, to me, there would be nothing more poetically beautiful than RFK Jr. achieving his uncle's ultimate... What was JFK's ultimate dream? In my opinion, his ultimate dream was the abolition of nuclear weapons. So to not just prevent... It's almost like we have Cuban Missile Crisis 2.0, much worse, happening right now in the form of this proxy war with Ukraine and Russia... And gosh, I do hope that gets resolved before January of 2025, because I don't know if we can wait that long. But Scott's not waiting for the next administration to do something about it. Scott Ritter, he is taking it on his own initiative to go to Russia personally. And he's trying to get his visa and his paperwork all ready right now. He's not waiting for 2025, which is what I've been hoping somebody would step up and do. So applause for Scott Ritter once again. And I hope that Bobby will make him our next Secretary of Defense. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> that, that would be quite a moment. When RFK Jr. comes into the White House, maybe he resolves that proxy war if it hasn't already been resolved. But to say, you know what, we need to change the course of history here. We need to get to a point where we have a global approach to peace and security and cooperation that includes the global abolition of nuclear weapons and that has to include a lot of regional conflict resolution to transform the conflicts and get to durable agreements for all of the states that currently possess nuclear weapons, including others who have hostility, which is a whole separate topic. Lori, you know what? Let's do an after show. And here's what the after show is. If you're up for it, is horse race. Do you want to do some horse race? Yeah, let's do okay. it. Okay. All right. So this is now, this begins the after show. The after show is horse race analysis, because that's always part of covering a campaign. It's kind of looking at What's the path from A to B to C? A is where we are today. B is Bobby is the nominee of the Democratic Party. And C is he is inaugurated in January of 2025. So I'm going to lay out the horse race for you. It is a shockingly clear path to victory on all fronts. I can't even imagine a weaker, and I mean weaker politically, incumbent president than President Biden. 
The horse race situation is eerily similar to 1968, where you had LBJ, whose popularity was a mile wide and paper thin. By 1968, boy, LBJ was in a lot of trouble, right? But still, the extent of his trouble was not clear to the political punditry until not Bobby, but Gene McCarthy really hurt him politically in the first primary in New Hampshire. Now, Gene McCarthy didn't win, but he came close. He got 40-something percent. He came close enough to LBJ that it was a political earthquake, and it showed how vulnerable LBJ was. Bobby Sr. jumped into the presidential race shortly thereafter, and then LBJ withdrew. Although, as we were discussing, Laurie, there is a very interesting historical postscript to that, which is I recently saw a documentary on Lady Bird on LBJ's wife. She had recorded a whole bunch of tapes while she was in the White House. And she said in one of those tapes that after LBJ became president, after the Dealey Plaza disaster on November 22nd, 1963, that shortly after that, she and her husband had a conversation where she had urged him to only run once, run in 64, but not run again in 68. She had told him she wanted him to be sort of a a one, I guess, a term and a half, a term and a third president. So there was already this idea between the two of them, apparently, that he wouldn't run again in 68. But still, you know, by 68, the Vietnam War was deeply unpopular and he withdrew. I just wanted to uh, add to that. I'm, I'm looking right now. I looked up President Johnson's approval ratings from late 67 going into early 68. And yeah, at the time he dropped out of the race at the end of March 1968, his approval ratings were about on par with where Joe Biden's are right now. At about <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I think, you know, if you look at Biden, obviously he doesn't have any Republican support. His independent support, and I haven't looked at the numbers recently. I don't imagine it's that high. But what you really find out once you start digging into his approvals is there's a lot of Democrats who wish they had another option. They might, on one hand, say, yeah, I support the president. They might say that. But then if you really start asking them, they do want another option. And so I think that once Bobby, there's a a sort of a critical mass behind Bobby, that him as a viable option is going to suddenly become very clear. I believe the country has a muscle memory for the expression President Kennedy obviously from JFK, but also from RFK Sr.'s campaign. So I think there's a muscle memory there that will sort of kick in when RFK Jr. steps into the light. And certainly by the time we get to the debates, if there even is a debate, I've read rumors, and I don't really know what's going on here, but I read a rumor that the Democratic Party is trying to like not have any debates. They're literally really. trying to do that. Yes, they. Th- this is this not is want to debate Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> I think if they go that far, it would expose the Democratic Party as such a threadbare, undemocratic organization. And we've seen this over and over again. It's almost like the Democratic Party is tripping all over itself to delegitimize itself. It comes in all these sort of insidious ways with superdelegates who can sort of counteract the actual will of the people. I remember seeing something where there was one, at least one state where Bernie won more votes than Hillary, but somehow Hillary ended up with more delegates than Bernie. And it Mm -hmm. comes in, you know, these leaks where I guess the allegation was that Hillary had been given certain questions ahead of time. So she knew what was the questions that were going to be asked in the debate. But Bernie didn't know the questions. Donna Brazil confirmed that. For the average person who's not paying a lot of attention, are they aware of how undemocratic the Democratic Party fundamentally has shown itself to be at various points? And certainly of all of them in 68. I mean, my gosh, when you had... 
the 68 Democratic Party convention meltdown, a lot of that was, at least my understanding of history, and I know we may have a slightly different take on this, story, but my understanding of that history is that if you add up all of the support that both Bobby, who was an anti-war vote, and Gene McCarthy, who was an anti-war vote, if you add all of that up, it was a much bigger critical mass of support within the Democratic Party in 1968 than Hubert Humphrey um, had. And I know you say, Lori, when we were talking earlier, I remember you saying that Hubert Humphrey eventually came around to opposing the Vietnam War. He but did. Certainly, but certainly in the summer of 68, and you know, um, he, he was... But it was, was too was, late. Was certain, yeah, it was he, in the and well, 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 he, yeah, well, here's my... I want to go to the summer of 68 at the convention. At the convention, Hubert Humphrey was a continue the LBJ policy candidate. He was a continue the Vietnam policy candidate, whereas Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy, both of them were very much opposed to the Vietnam War policy. And so there, you know, and that was why the summer of 68, why that convention turned into such a chaotic tragedy was because of the sense that so many young people had that the whole thing was rigged, that the party bosses were choosing, the party decides. Isn't there a book called The Party Decides? The party had decided to sort of anoint Hubert Humphrey, despite the fact that the base and the Democratic will inside the Democratic Party was for an anti-war candidate. And when Bobby Kennedy was tragically eliminated, and that's a whole other story, that it would have been Gene McCarthy who could have carried the anti-war torch. So, so, so the point of all of that, just to bring it back to present tense, if we end up in a situation where the Democratic Party literally, literally deletes and does not schedule, does not hold a single debate, how could any member of the Democratic Party relate to it as anything other than an autocratic farce? I have to agree with you. And President Biden, if he has any marbles left, if he hasn't completely lost his marbles, he should just pull an LBJ. He should decline to run again this year. He should read the writing on the wall. For one thing, he's too old. For another thing, he's incredibly unpopular. He needs to get out of the way and let younger leadership go for the, the top job. I also wanted to mention this corruption in the Democratic Party, the nominees being picked by party insiders. This is old practically as the party itself. And certainly, I would encourage people to go back on YouTube and watch the Democratic Convention of 1980. And it's all available. There's many hours of it, several nights of the coverage. And just watch the way that Ted Kennedy was treated when he mm. challenged Jimmy Carter for the nomination. A very similar scenario there in 1980 as well as 1968. You had a very unpopular Democratic incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, who was being challenged from the left within his own party by a Kennedy. Ted Kennedy was trying to wrest the nomination away from him. And boy, were there some shenanigans being pulled by those party insiders to make sure that Jimmy Carter was, in fact, the nominee. But I, wow. I'm not so sure that most Democrats really wanted him. There was a very strong showing for Senator Ted Kennedy in 1980 as well. So, so yeah, I expect them to do that again. I was in seventh so grade at the time, yeah. and I was a big supporter of Teddy. You know, I supported Carter yeah. in 76, actually yeah. campaigned for him as a little kid. But Carter let me down. He was my first political heartbreak. I had all my hopes pinned on Jimmy Carter, and boy, did he let me down. So when Ted Kennedy challenged him, I was on Team Kennedy. If we're going to talk a little bit about past heartbreaks, Bernie in 2016, and especially Bernie 2020, mm. felt like the most heartbreaking political rug pull imaginable because he saw Bernie romp to victory, right, in Iowa 
and New Hampshire and Nevada. So he was three and oh, right? And I was counting all the chickens directly to the White House. I was certain Bernie was going to be not just the Democratic nominee, but the next president. I was certain of that. And oh boy, that didn't work out. So having said that, with a big caveat, I'm going to say here now, I'm going to call it that RFK Jr. will be the next president. And in terms of the horse race dynamic, what I see happening is that he is going to explode in the polls upward. We looked at the polls recently, and there was that morning consult poll where basically immediately yeah. after he, this was just based on him having filed some paperwork. He's at 10% instantaneously. This is a very good sign. Starting at 10% as an outsider candidate is a good sign. The other thing is, he said that he will be the Democratic Donald Trump of this race. And I want to state clearly what I believe he meant by that. I don't believe he was literally comparing himself to Trump, especially not personality-wise. I think what he means is in terms of the way an outsider can come in and gravitate an enormous amount of energy for reforming a broken party. Because when Trump came in, his way of doing that was to point out the bankruptcy of the neocons and the wars in Bush, right? Trump went after Bush. Trump's criticism of Bush and literally of Jeb Bush was one of the many things where Trump came in and said, you know, there's a different way to be a Republican than this. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with Trump as a person. I'm saying that that was appealing politically. And I do think there will be something politically appealing about having an outsider who is a Kennedy, who is presenting also, if you look at RFK Jr., he is such a statesmanly way of speaking and communicating. He is really got a laser voice, but you'll notice that he doesn't get enraged. He doesn't look like he's flying off the handle the way he has a very cool, calm, that attorney demeanor, but you can feel his heart. You can feel his passion. It's very focused energy and he is an intellectual giant. So it is a total mismatch. It is a total mismatch between his intellect, which even if we had Biden from 20 years ago, Biden from 20 years ago wouldn't stand a chance intellectually um, with RFK Jr. But certainly the Biden of today, everyone knows that the light bulb is not fully on. That's a little dim over there. And I think it is one of those elephants in the room. It's one of those taboos. It's one of those things people don't want to say President Biden looks like he's got something going on in that area. People don't want to say it who are close to him. Like you've got the grandpa where you need to talk to grandpa because he probably shouldn't have a driver's license. Even if you set aside all of the reasons Biden is really off base for America in terms of policy, you can criticize his policy. I don't know that someone who is in his particular stage of apparent cognitive decline should be running any country, period, even if you thought his policies were the greatest in the world. Let me jump in and remind you of that new Rasmussen poll that shows in all the way across the board, 62% of Democrats want another Democrat to primary Joe Biden. Thank you. 71% of Republicans want to see that. And 64% of independents also want him gone. So that's a majority across the board that say Joe Biden needs to go. And you know what's really exciting? That morning consult poll where Bobby came in with, you know, 10% right out of the chutes. That's awesome. But the Rasmussen poll is even more encouraging. And that was taken a few days after 
the morning consult. This was conducted. It's a survey of 950 likely voters in the United States conducted between April 9th and 11th. And in that poll, they were asked specifically about Robert Kennedy and 25% of Democrats that already strongly support him, 27% somewhat support him. So that's a really good start. That's almost half of Democrats right there. That I think and let's clarify to get their votes. And let's clarify one thing about that poll. The Rasmussen was worded slightly differently. The morning consult was, would you vote for? Whereas this was, would you support Bobby running? So it's almost like, do you want to see him in the race? So it wasn't like we had a majority of Dems already saying they were going to vote for Bobby. It was more like they just like, I want to give this guy a chance. But that's a still a very good sign. And I think we're going to see a very quick movement. Oh, just one thing with- I want to add yeah. on that poll. It's also important what Republicans and independents think, because he's going to need to win those votes as well. Uh, 13% of Republicans strongly support Bobby getting into the race. 27% also somewhat support him. And on the independent side, again, really good. 15% say that they strongly support Bobby's entrance into this race. 29% somewhat support it. I just want to finish my quick thought on where I see the race going. My prediction is Bobby jumps in and the heat starts turning up on Biden. And it becomes a little bit of a frantic thing for Biden and his team where Bobby is gaining support. So then they start throwing their muck at him. And I think fundamentally the muck ultimately will not stick because I think the American people will be more interested in what he represents and what his policies are than the muck. And then I think what will happen is Biden will drop out. And then I think we're going to have an absolute sort of like a bunny explosion. Remember Remember the Democratic primary? of 2020, where there was more Dems running at one point than you could possibly keep track of. There was like governors you'd heard of once in your life and they were up on, and there was like so many people up on stage that it was very hard to moderate. I think there's going to be like, you know, the Gavin Newsom's, the Pete Buttigieg's, the Kamala Harris's, and a bunch of other people are going to jump in. But then the fundamental dynamic is almost going to be like Trump in 16, where Bobby is going to be this one singular voice who's going to be talking about things like we need to not have an imperium abroad and we need to have a democracy at home. And here's what I mean by that. He's going to be saying that and nobody's going to be able to like rebut him or debate him because almost all of them will have already shot themselves in the foot with their poor voting record. All these people who have been voting the wrong way in terms of the military industrial complex and sending unlimited amounts of weapons to Ukraine. We had a situation where we had the alleged progressive members of the Democratic Congress issue a letter demanding negotiations, saying there must be a negotiated settlement. And then they retracted that letter under yeah. pressure. So we had progressives caving over and over again on that topic. So I think Bobby is just going to stand head and shoulders above them all. And I think he's going to win. And then once you get to the general election, ultimately, if there is one reason Bobby will beat Trump, and I do think it will be Trump, look at his momentum. The reason I think Bobby is going to beat Trump is that the middle ground of America, those who are independently minded and don't always vote exactly the same way, they don't always vote for the same party every time because they're the ones who decide presidential elections, right? It's not the D tribe, it's not the R tribe, it's the people who kind of reserve judgment until the last two weeks of the campaign. They're going to want a presidential president instead of a bombastic, angry, attacking president. Bobby Kennedy is the kind of person where you say, fundamentally, do you want him to be a role model for your kids or do you want Trump to be a role model for your kids? And I think Bobby is much 
better role model for people's kids. And that's why I think uh, in terms of just how he comes across his demeanor and his gravitas will be what is the deciding factor. And I'm not saying that's what the deciding factor it should be. The deciding factor should always be, uh, be policy questions. But I think once you get to that presidential horse race level where there's a lot of very, very low information voters who don't really pay a lot of attention, I think they kind of vote with their gut based on these sort of intangible factors. And I think that will be one of them that really puts Bobby over the edge. I think our biggest enemy is not even the Democratic Party machine. Our biggest enemy is the voters' distrust of the vote. Mm. I think, especially after the 2020 election, there's a lot of apathy out there. There's a lot of anger out there. Since Bobby started exploring the possibility of running for president, I've probably talked to 100 different voters who say, I really like him. I hope he wins, but I will not vote. And they say they either won't vote for a Democrat because they hate the Democratic Party that much, or they just won't vote at all because after what happened in 2020, they don't have any faith or any trust that the elections are honest anymore. I can't say as I blame them, but that's going to be our greatest challenge is to motivate people to go ahead and vote, give it another try, get registered, cast your vote. It's the only way to try and make your voice heard. Yes, they rig elections, at the local level, at the state level, and probably at the federal level too. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And obviously Bobby thinks so too, or he wouldn't be putting himself out there, sticking his neck out to run, knowing all the challenges that he's up against. I think our greatest task is those of us who support him. It's going to be getting people registered to vote and convincing them to vote. I think it's our greatest challenge. Interesting. Well, I think that's always a challenge for every campaign ever, right? Getting people registered and getting people to vote. Turnout is always a challenge. However, to the extent that there are people who rightly or wrongly, and I don't take a position on this at all. I have no position on this because it's not something I've researched. But to the extent that there are people who distrust the electoral process, that means there are going to be a certain number of people who don't vote. And there always are a certain number of people who don't vote. I think taking into account the people who do vote and who don't vote, I think as long as the voting machines are working properly and there's some honest reporting going on, Bobby wins. Bobby wins on every level. And that's the vision I have. And that's the vision I'm holding for us and for this space. Alex, thanks for waiting so long. I had that handle forever. Just a year ago, I was saying I would never vote Democrat ever under any circumstance after Bernie. But there's no reason you can't register for primary ones. Vote like, In my state, you can literally just register and unregister from any party at moment's notice. So what I can literally do is I can vote RFK in the Democratic primaries. Then once that ends, then when the Republican primaries begin, I can vote for like the most anti-establishment Republican, whether that be Trump or someone else. And I would actually recommend everyone do that here if their state ballot laws allow them to. Just go in every primary, vote for the most anti-imperialist candidate or the most anti-establishment or just the most chaotic candidate possible and just see what happens. And by the way, do I expect RFK to win the primaries? No, but I'm voting knowing that he won't win, but knowing that he will cause the average American, especially the average Democrat, to have a lot of questions about how their own party works. And in that way, I support him. I fully support what RFK is doing. I live in California. There's tons of Democrats who run all the time here. The only other Democrat I've ever been enthusiastic about has been Geoff Young, and he's not even from my state. He's from Kentucky. So it's like, look, we don't have much here at all, but I've already volunteered to support RFK. Even though it's possible for voting to be rigged, right? But you should still vote for the most 
anti-establishment candidate possible, even if it's rigged, just for the slight chance that it does screw something up for the system. Because remember, even if RFK gets like 30% of the vote, that's a big enough voter margin for people to start having questions. Because then people will start assuming it's rigged. And honestly, all I hope is this. RFK better not concede. And RFK better fight. You know, like Even after the primary. All I'm going to say is, for everyone here, look, you may be pessimistic about voting and everything, but just vote RFK in the primaries and unregister after you're done. Yeah, I have to agree. Thank, I, thank I'm you. one of those Democrats who I left the Democratic Party in 1996. I became a libertarian. And I have not voted for a Democrat in 27 years, guys. That's how much I hate the Democratic Party, okay? But I'm going to do it. I mean, Bobby's going to be the first Democrat I voted for in 27 years. And I don't know how long I'll last as a Democrat. Probably as long as Bobby does. As long as he's in the party and he's running, I'll go ahead and do it. I will vote Democrat. But, you know, then we have to cross that bridge after the convention. What happens well, then? You know, and that's a topic for maybe next week is would there actually be any chance of a Trump Kennedy ticket in the fall, a unity ticket? I just want to say, Lori, absolutely not. That is not something that we're going to. Well, you can you can envision whatever you want, Lori, for myself as the host. Of oh, space. believe me. I'm I just want to be I want to be absolutely clear about a couple of things in terms of both what my vision is and kind of what the the basic sort of approach for these spaces will be in the future, okay? So the first thing is this space is about Robert Kennedy becoming president of the United States of America. You know, I don't remember who it was who said this. It was from one of the the Democratic primaries in the past. It might have been one of Jerry Brown's races or something, but it was like, the question was like, do you want to send them a message or do you want to send them a president? This is not a protest campaign. This is not about sending a message. This is about revolutionary change in this country. This is about restoring American democracy. This is about taking back control from the military industrial complex that has run this country ever since November 22nd, 1963. Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the danger of the military industrial complex in not just endangering our democratic liberties, but subverting and transforming them. And RFK Jr. himself has said that was the most important speech any president has ever given. He did not say his uncle's peace speech, which in my opinion actually was the most important speech ever given. He didn't say that. He said Dwight's. Why did he say that? It's because he's pointing to the fundamental nature of what we are dealing with. We are dealing with a fake democracy. We're dealing with a non-democracy. The reason so many people, in my opinion, like you, Alex, ultimately, ultimately are alienated from the entire process is because it's all a farce. It's all a facade. We can't really talk about anything in our country without talking about what's beneath the surface, what's driving the whole thing, what the system is. What the system is, is a military industrial complex running our country to ensure we are in one way or another in a perpetual state of war and money is always being funneled to the military industrial complex and if the facade politicians who are figureheads want to have a debate about other stuff, like what the tax rate should be, fine. But as long as they get to have their ongoing war machine, they run everything. So that's what we're up against. And so I don't want these spaces to get too distracted into hypotheticals. I don't want these spaces to become distracted into, well, could Bobby run as an independent if he doesn't win the Democratic nomination? Or could he be the vice president under Trump? I actually am going to not have us have those conversations because I want to bring the conversation back to 
what we are envisioning, what we are calling in, and what we're supporting. This is a biased space. It's not a space that is looking at this objectively. It is subjectively a pro-Kennedy for president space, and we're going to stay focused on that. And I want to encourage everyone here to believe and feel that this is going to happen and put all of your energy into that. Put all of your energy into President Kennedy Jr. in January of 2025, and we're going to make that happen. I hope that was okay, Lori, that I got a little bit passionate here. Hey, I love passion. We need that. We need a lot of that. And people are so apathetic and so angry at their government and at the elections right now. When I talk to people who really hate the Democratic Party and I try to convince them to support Kennedy, the way that I approach it is I tell them that this would be my first time voting for a Democrat in 27 years. That usually gets their attention. And I also try to convince them that you got to vote for the person, not the party. And so I encourage everyone to check out Bobby Kennedy, look at where he's at on the issues, make up your own mind, and try to do that based on your instincts about people. I would encourage you to vote for the best man, not the party. And I believe that Bobby Kennedy is the best man. Fundamentally, there is almost nothing about the Democratic Party in and of itself that in any way inspires or motivates me to get out of bed and get excited because I have not heard any of what Bobby is saying from anyone who currently holds elected office across the board. And that includes, unfortunately, Bernie Sanders, who at this point has become someone very different than the person who I remember during the 2020 campaign. I'm here to support Bobby Kennedy Jr. I'm not here to support the Democratic Party. What I do support, though, is... It's almost like a jiu-jitsu move or a power move or a reform. Like if Bobby becomes the Democratic nominee for president in 2024, he is de facto the leader of the Democratic Party. Whether the party bosses really want that or not, that is is the case. That's always been the case. It is always the case that the party has a new head at the convention. That has always traditionally been the case. And so if Bobby says... This is the vision for America. This is the vision for this nation. This is what the platform for America is. Then that suddenly becomes also the platform for the Democratic Party. And there may be, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just going to put out the possibility that we may see some unexpected miracles. We may see some members of the party, members of Congress, representatives and senators who suddenly find the courage that they did not have or that they'd stuffed down as they fed from the trough of the donations from corporations and from industry, they might suddenly say, you know what? The water's safe. The water is safe because Bobby Kennedy is making the water safe. I'm going to go over there because I actually want to stand for that platform instead of who I used to stand for. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I think it's possible. And I think we actually could see a transformation of the Democratic Party. So you know, I'm not so you're saying a few of them uh, might find their backbones, you mean? Yeah, we might we might get that spinal transplant that I, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to remember who it was who talked about it. Oh, it was, that was Howard Dean. 2004. It was funny because Howard Dean kind of caught my eye before Dennis Kucinich did. And I actually really liked Dennis's anti-war and a lot of his, you know, Department of Peace and a lot of his other stuff. But I, I kind of thought Dean might actually have a chance to win. So I kind of got behind Dean. And I remember he gave this really firebrand speech about 
how members of Congress needed a spinal transplant. They needed to get their backbones and oppose George W. Bush. I remember that. That was, that was a good one. Yeah, but you know, but so, so I feel like we've had these little moments, these little flashes of this possibility in people like Bernie and Howard Dean and Dennis and Barbara Lee at times, although not as much recently. But it's almost completely gone. There's almost nothing to be found anymore in the Democratic Party. But maybe it does get rebooted in some way as a result of Bobby winning. I just wanted to leave you with a quote from his dad. You remember the ripple of hope quote? You know the one I'm talking about? Uh, the South Africa speech Go said, uh, each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. What better way to describe the RFK Jr. for president campaign than that? He's a ripple of hope, and we need that right now. And I have hope. I've seen a lot in my political lifetime. So many politicians let me down. I'm also cynical. I'm also angry. But I'm not apathetic. And I still care very much about our country. We absolutely must save it. It's up to us. And I think RFK is the guy that we can count on. You know, based on both what you said about the ripple of hope, as well as the kind of the cynical thing because of being let down in the past, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s campaign represents real hope and real change. That's right. That Real hope, real change. Right. Not not the phony and, stuff that Barack yeah, Obama yeah, well, was I'm not, <laughs> We could talk about Obama another time, but real hope and real change. And Bobby is a profile in courage. For any of us who ask ourselves, what are we willing to do? How far are we willing to go? What risks are we willing to take? What are we willing to put on the line for this? Bobby was asked in an interview, are you concerned about your physical safety? And of course, there's an obvious context to that question. And mm-hmm. it's just cold as steel. It's like, no, I'm not concerned. So Bobby is a living profile in courage. And let yes. us draw on the inspiration of that courage and that belief that a better world is possible and a better America is possible. And, you know, we all have to encircle this man, like physically protect him by putting our bodies in front of him everywhere he goes. I mean, the people's secret service. I'm not going to trust the secret service to keep him safe. They certainly failed to keep his uncle safe. We have to protect this man. We have to help him in every way that we can. And even if that comes down to physically protecting him by encircling him with our bodies and and making a circle around this man to say, don't you lay a finger on this one. And let's have that idea be both a physical and a metaphorical one, because there are a lot of different ways to protect, stand up, and stand with this campaign many, many different ways. And it's going to take a lot of different people with different skills and talents all across this country to move and pl- this campaign yeah, forward. Uh, you and, know, spiritually and, when it, and, and when that bright, beautiful day in January of 2025 comes, the White House will be the people's White House again. Sounds good to me. I'm in. Okay. Let's win. All right. All right. Let's win it. On Twitter, follow at RFK all the way USA. Again, that's at RFK All The Way USA for additional episode notifications, Twitter spaces, and commentary. Follow our guest, Lori Spencer, at Real Lori Spencer.
on Twitter. This podcast is independent from and does not speak for Kennedy24. To learn more about the campaign, go to kennedy24.com to watch videos, volunteer, and or contribute funds. Let's create USA 2.0 together. Subscribe to this podcast and see you on the next one. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Good night. Okay, good night.